There are not too many scriptures left in our culture that people in general know and are familiar with. It used to be that someone could be a church person or not. They could tell you John 3.16. They could tell you Psalm 23. Many of these scriptures that were sort of floating around the ether. I think most of that has gone away. Mostly in these days, people could tell you that somewhere in the Bible it says, Judge not, lest ye be judged, although they certainly couldn't tell you the context or the meaning of it. And I think most people could give you a basic flyover of 1 Corinthians 13. Because even people who don't go to church for church occasionally go to church for weddings. And much of the time, when you go to church for a wedding, you hear this passage read, and often the homily is on this passage as well. Now, I have done, man, well, coming up on 100 weddings, I have tried very hard to avoid preaching this passage because I don't want to portray it as being about romantic love. It's not. It's about Christian love in general. And I don't want to pull it out of its context. I've told you the three rules for Bible study many times over. Does anyone remember what they are? There they are, and I would be breaking all three then. And so, so to come up and preach this passage without the context, which is spiritual gifts. In fact, we see that right from the beginning of chapter 12. We read now about spiritual gifts, brothers. I do not want you to be ignorant. So to preach it without that context that leads into it would be off base. But to stand up at a wedding and preach it with that context of prophecies and speaking in tongues and things would be out of place. It would be very strange. Not only because uh, it wouldn't have much to do with the occasion that gathered us all together, but because in addition to the sort of sacred, solemn, covenant aspect of a wedding, it is also a legal contract, and that is the last time you want anyone speaking in tongues when they're saying, I do, or repeating their vows, and no one knows what the world they're, they're trying to say. And so, I mean, if, if indeed you had this read or preached at your wedding, it's not a bad text for it, because it's about Christian love, and there is nowhere that Christian love should be more exemplified than in a Christian marriage. And I think that if we remember that, you could preach this anywhere. In fact, this was read at Princess Diana's funeral, I remember. And I thought, wow, that's fitting and an interesting twist on uh, the usual practice. But I think what it answers is not what is marriage supposed to look like, but a broader question, indeed, that is, what is love? And there is a beautiful song that addresses this very question. And I know that the other week I played for you that horrible early 90s pop song and it got in everybody's head and everybody was a little annoyed with me. So to make up for it, I would like you to listen to this song about what, what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Stop it! That's, that's for free. Richard asked me to do that. Take up your complaints with him. That question is the question here. What, what is love? The world's obviously asking it. There are many songs. There are many novels. There are many poems. There are many films and television shows addressing this question, trying to answer this question. The world's very into it, but the answers the world gives are never the answer that the scriptures give about the question, what exactly is love? The answer is usually something emotional. It's something we feel. I feel butterflies in my belly or something percolating deep in the, the, the cockles of my heart or, or deeper yet in the subcockle area. Or perhaps it is something more visceral and animal. It's a, a physical, carnal, sexual drive that people feel. That's often the world's answer. It often seems in, in popular culture to... to kind of be about manipulating and controlling people because they love you and now I can motivate you to do what I want you to do. Or maybe today's culture, the main answer given to what is love is it means I affirm and celebrate and accept everything about you without ever trying to help you move beyond any of it. Even if it's self-destructive, even if it's wicked, even if it's evil, I will not in any way ever mess with that. I'll, it's sacrosanct. That's love. A very laissez-faire, hands-off, kind of from afar, just gazing upon you and appreciating all that you are. The scriptures are going to give us a very different 
idea here. Now, before we answer the question, what is love? We have to answer a couple of other questions, and we're going to answer them very quickly. They are both from 1 Corinthians 12, and they both supply for us the context here. Those are what is prophecy and what is the gift of tongues. These are things that could take months of sermon series or study or reading many, many books. Much, much ink has been spilled on this. And honestly, probably a little bit of blood has been spilled on this. People get so uh, up in arms about topics like this. They're both controversial questions. I'm just going to give you the real quick wiki Cliff's Notes overview here. We're going to talk a little bit in this passage about prophecy. When I hear prophecy, my first thought, like most people's first thought, is kind of the foretelling, telling the future, Nostradamus, in accordance with the ancient prophecies, blah, blah, blah. This is going to happen. And there's some of that in the Bible prediction of what will happen or more like God telling people what he intends to do in the future foretelling but even in the old testament that's not the majority it's a small fraction of what happens when you read the prophets or you read narratives in the old or new testament where prophets are prophesying more than that you have forthtelling explaining what God has already said, what it means and how it applies to you. I had a professor in seminary, actually I had a professor in Bible college before that, uh, Bob Rapay, who would always say that in the Old Testament, the prophets were God's covenant enforcement policemen. That they would come in and they would say, you guys already know the law, you're breaking the law, let me remind you how you're breaking the law, you're exploiting the poor, you're treating uh, aliens and sojourners and widows and orphans, poorly and, and they would come in and they would remind the people this is what God has said this is what God said are, are the results the consequences of breaking his law so it's kind of to to stand up and and just announce what God has said even into the New Testament you see a lot of that where prophecy is in, in the church one at a time and then people weigh the prophecies to make sure that they're in keeping with what scripture has already said. Now, it's not to say that there's never miraculous uh, prophecy of foretelling in the New Testament. Agabus, for example, you know, ties up Paul. He's like, hey, see, you're going to be tied up like this. But that's the minority. So it seems to be a, a lot like what a preacher might do on Sunday morning, proclaiming what God has already proclaimed and helping to apply it. And yet it is a spiritual gift and it is portrayed as supernatural in this setting. Then we have the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues in the Old Testament is uh, perhaps just whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, the end result is usually speaking. We might say broadly that's the gift of tongues. In the New Testament, this is where it gets controversial. And I'm just going to say the safest thing, which is that most people agree that the first and perhaps main manifestation of this gift is a practical discipleship evangelism functional gift where, for example, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fills the, the disciples in the upper room, they go out and preach, and miraculously people from all over the world hear them not only in their own language, but in their own dialect even. So the Holy Spirit is at work bridging this gap kind of undoing the result of uh, Babel when the language was confused. It's now kind of unconfused. Now, there, of course, are other manifestations of this that, that seem to be referenced in the scriptures. Uh, worship in tongues. Uh, I often would think of a lot of people gathered together in certain church traditions, all kind of shouting in tongues at the same time. That's actually condemned by scripture. It, it, that's chaos, and God is a God of order, not chaos. But there are churches in which this stuff is carried out in an orderly way. We don't have time to delve into all of that. So there's a, a, a kind of core of miraculous gifts that Paul has already been discussing. Then he says, let me show you the most excellent way. And he starts talking about love. And that might seem a little random. But I, I think the key to understanding where Paul's thinking is, is to remember that spiritual gifts, all spiritual gifts, whether miraculous or so-called mundane gifts are for one purpose. Not building up myself, but building up the church. Building up other believers. Building up the body of Christ. You are given your gifts to build up others. It's for the church. So, for example, if you think perhaps that you have the gift of hospitality, which is bringing people into your home and caring for them and helping them, 
Uh, or, or, or the gift of encouraging or comforting, which might overlap with that. Uh, calling someone when they are down or, or making some cook. Usually for Baptists, this would involve Tupperware of some kind. You're going to bring them a casserole. You're going to bring them some brownies or something. And, and you think you have these gifts, but if all you do is sit at home and let yourself sleep on your own couch and make cookies and brownies and then eat them yourself, you haven't got the gift. These gifts are ways for us to love one another and therefore build one another up. And so, I mean, it isn't surprising when you recognize the truth at some point that age is no guarantee of maturity. We all know people whose very lives kind of broadcast that truth, but I think it is a little more surprising when we read something like this and recognize that giftedness, even for a Christian, even impressive giftedness, even miraculous giftedness, is also not a guarantor of maturity. That the evidence of maturity in a Christian is more and more Christ-like love. And the carrying out of gifts motivated by love. That's how, according to Jesus, in the text that we just heard, the, the world will know that we are his followers. The world will know that we belong to him. Not that they'll look at how we love them and say, oh yeah, okay, you know, no. They'll first see how we love one another. That's scary, isn't it? Have you heard of Twitter? <laughs> Christian Twitter is not a notoriously peaceful place where people build one another up. This, this is scary stuff to me. The world will look and see us fighting and angry and, and vitriol over the smallest doctrinal things or cultural differences or political differences condemning one another. Now, the world is supposed to see the church loving one another. And then what happens is out of that love for one another, our love for God, our love spills out then to those who are outside of Christ. And like Christ, we look on them with the hearts of compassion and love, and we value them as those made in God's image and people whom Jesus loves and came to redeem. And so the, the contrast here with love and spiritual gifts is that where there are gifts like tongues or prophecy or teaching or, or, or even encouragement, you know, these, these things are going to cease. They're going to come to an end. Their usefulness will come to an end when this age comes to an end. But love is different. It's eternal. That's how the greatest of these is love. It's the one that will outlast everything. Calvin said that love is the regulating principle of all our actions. Indeed, it is the most excellent way. Let's look then at this passage. I'm going to do a real quick. We, we did a microscope look at this when I preached through 1 Corinthians years ago. That's still on the website if you want to have a look at it. But we're going to do the, the quick flyover today. It starts with these words. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. What is he going to do? Obviously, I'm going to make a bunch of noise with that symbol. That's coming. Brace yourself. Or maybe I'm not. Maybe it's just to mess with you. I don't know. But he goes right to this idea of speaking in the tongues of angels. There's all sorts of ink spilled on this as well. A lot of debate. What does he mean? Some people think that he's talking about a certain kind of heavenese, a kind of spiritual language that is only spoken between God and the angels in heaven or something, and that it's possible in the spirit with the gift of tongues to speak that language or to praise God in that language. Possibly. I think it's more likely, given the context, writing to the church in Corinth, that he's just talking about incredibly eloquent speech. That's what was valued most in Corinth. In fact, that's why Paul had kind of a, a bad rap amongst them, because he wasn't overly eloquent in person when he spoke as an orator. He's saying, you, you people in Corinth, lift up eloquence, being able to speak wonderfully golden-tongued, and yet even if you can do it better than anyone, even if you could go to heaven itself and still your audience would hang on your every word and be enraptured by you, your voice, your words, your speaking is like a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. I'm not going to hit it. Uh, I was going to bang on it and bang on it for a little while while I preached, but that's just obnoxious. Oh, what the heck? This is what it sounds like. Horrible, right? We might think that when we master the art of oratory 
Or that when we know enough about a topic to speak in an impressive way that God too is impressed, especially if what we're speaking about are holy things. But if there isn't love undergirding it, that's what it sounds like. Or a, or a clanging gong. Anybody here remember the gong show? It ran in like the late 70s, early 80s. I was too young to really appreciate it when it first ran, but I saw the reruns. I loved the gong show. Like some guy would get up who couldn't sing at all and try to sing. It was like a talent show program. And there were some celebrity judges like Jamie Farr and Rip Torn and stuff. And, and when it got so bad they couldn't take it anymore, they'd hit the gong. And then you had to stop. That was it. You were out of there. And it sounds to me like God has his own gong show going on here. We might get up and I think, oh boy, I can speak. I've got a gift for tongues. And I wouldn't even argue with someone if they said they thought that someone who could speak very eloquently might have the, a gift of tongues. Or someone who mastered the biblical language was really easily, or, or was a missionary going off and learned, you know, Vietnamese in six months or something had a gift of tongues. And you might have that gift, but still not have love. And if that's the case, God's hitting the gong and pushing you off the stage because it sounds terrible. Now, a cymbal being played by a skilled percussionist can sound wonderful. If you are watching, for example, a symphony, and there's a point where it builds and builds and builds, and the symbol, that can give you chills and be beautiful. But just some idiot up here clanging on it like that, that's what he's talking about, indiscriminate clanging. And that would have been a horrible, horrible insult to those super apostles, as Paul calls them, in Corinth, who knew they had the gift of tongues and really wanted to use it for self-promotion. You know what, let me be kind and, and erase that awful song that I gave you. And, and instead, uh, David's going to play another song that I think illustrates what it sounds like when the symbol is used in the right way. They didn't play that. It's a little Duke Ellington there. Now listen carefully. You can hear a symbol, and it's not calling attention to itself. It's not clanging, clanging, clanging indiscriminately. No, it's part of the song. It's undergirding the song. It's helping in the, the context of everything else to bring beauty into the music. You can pause that one. By contrast, this is what it sounds like when we just clang, 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 me, 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 focus on self with our spiritual gifts. What is noise? It's just noise. It's just noise. Okay, turn it off. Take it out. Break it in half, burn it. We're done with it. Okay, verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I can understand all doctrine and theology and all scripture from creation to the end times and everything in between. I can be the, the most uh, skilled, learned genius of the holy things of God. But if I have not love, not I have nothing, I am nothing. That is strong language. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I de deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If I'm one of these guys with like the giant checks, and they've got huge numbers on them, both in, in size and in amount. And I'm just chucking them to everybody. Here, you get one, you get one, you get every worthy cause. Look at all that I'm doing, all my largesse. But it's not motivated by love. And I think often it's not, or the checks would probably be smaller. Then I gain nothing. Or even if I deliver myself to the flames as a martyr, which in the early church was the ultimate way to show that you were indeed a true Christian. That even when put to the ultimate test, you would say, no, I will not deny Jesus Christ. Even if I have to go and be eaten by lions or burned in the fire. It's possible that someone would do that and still not have love and gain nothing from it. A clanging cymbal, a, 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 a gong, a, a horrible techno song from the 90s. Then in verse 4, it begins with the part we usually read at the weddings. Love is patient, love is kind, etc., etc. This is, it's not a definition of love. 
it's more of a composite sketch. Like when someone robs a bank and everyone who saw them will, will give a description and a police artist will kind of put all that together and come up with the best possible rendering and say, this is the guy. Have you seen this guy? He robbed the bank. This is saying, this is love. Have you seen this? This is what it looks like. You'll hear all sorts of other people describing all sorts of other pictures, but the Bible says, if you want to know what love really looks like, here it is. Speaking of music I don't like, John Lennon had a song, All I Need, All You Need. All you need, all we all need, all you need is love, right? Sean, are you upset with me now? Okay, good. It's not a bad song. It's kind, it's kind of one of his better songs. But, but all you need is love is the idea there. And, and, and I got to agree with him that it's true because love, according to Jesus, is the law. Right? When somebody comes to him, how do I have eternal life? He says, well, keep the law. Well, how do you keep the law? He boils it down to what? Love God. Love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, they're, they're contained within that, within love. We could boil it down to that one word. So, yes, if you can perfectly love, that means you have perfectly kept the entire law. And if you could perfectly keep the entire law and somehow sidestep original sin, I guess, then, yeah, all you need is love. But since none of us can, love's not going to save us. You need something else. You need something more. You need something outside of yourself. You need the gospel. At the cross, Jesus provides for us, out of his love, the righteousness that we need. He kept the law for us. He never failed to love in the most biblical and perfect way. He's the model for us of how to love everyone from his enemies to his family to his followers to people who were just annoying and gathering around him for free food. He showed us how to love and then he died for us on a cross to take our sins upon his shoulders. So, so if the love is the law and the law can't save us, why is it so central to Jesus' teaching and his ministry? I think the answer we find in, in John 13, 34, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And of course he tells them by this, all men will know that I am your disciples. That's one function of the love, but love being the law, we see the law functioning different ways for sinners and for saints, for believers and for unbelievers. We, we understand that the primary purpose of the law is actually to show people that they've broken it and their need for a savior. To kind of give them the uppercut and a shove to the foot of the cross where they can truly receive salvation because love won't save you. I've sat at the, the deathbeds of Christians, church members, who've been Christians for decades, and asked them the question I ask everybody, why will God let you into heaven? I've learned I've got to ask this. I can't, I don't care if I offend you. You know what? If you're going to be dead soon anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking any chances. I'm not, I'm not going to risk the regret of not asking because I've had so many people tell me things like, because I lived a loving life, because I showed a lot of love to my family, because I was forgiving, because, and they start going through the law. No, that's not why you will have everlasting life. You can't have it that way. That's the first function is to show us our need for a Savior. But once we've come to the cross and been saved, love as law, the law of love, as the New Testament calls it, remains there, and its primary function is as this composite sketch to show us how we ought to live, how our lives ought to look. In fact, if you were to take this composite sketch and, and draw it out, it would look like the face of Jesus because he perfectly manifests every aspect of this. J James teaches this and Paul teaches this. We were, we were just finished going through the book of James in our men's Bible study, and it was quite clear to all of us, this is not at odds with what Paul teaches at all about salvation. They both recognize salvation by grace through faith, but if you are saved, your salvation will give birth in your heart and in your life to love, acts of love and mercy. You're not going to be the guy who says, yeah, go away, be warm and well fed. You're going to be the one feeding and warming. We read about this in John, 1 John 4, right? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is known of God and, and knows God, is born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And then he describes this is what the love looked like. Jesus came down and died on a cross for us. 
It's no surprise to us then that as he describes love in this composite picture, he doesn't describe what love feels like as if it were an emotion. Rather, he starts listing out things that love does and does not do. He's describing love as motion more than emotion. He's not as concerned with whether you have that feeling fizzing in your, your heart or butterflies in your stomach, but rather that you live as one who has been bought with a price, who's been forgiven much and therefore loves much. And when Jesus said that, he was describing the action that the woman was taking. And yes, it involved tears, so it did involve emotion, but the action itself was the love. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Or as the great DC talk put it, love is a verb. Verse 4, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful. Love is patient, love is kind. That, to me, that is the kind of Bible language, it's the same in almost every translation, including the King James of my youth, and I hear that and it just comforts me. There's something beautiful about it, love is patient, love is kind. This is the kind of thing that people cross-stitch and then hang up on the wall. And yet, think about what it's saying. In the, in the King James, in some other old translations, you, you read about love being long-suffering. And that's a very faithful translation. That also sounds kind of old-timey and nice. Long-suffering. Until you think about the origin of that word. Suffering long. Lots of Suffering. You ever been in love, you know that that's what it's all about, right? Lots of suffering. But, but Christian love as well, being willing to suffer long. Not to say, okay, it's been enough. I, I, I've put up with you long enough. I, I'm done. We, we, we think about uh, how ugly this can get once it intersects with real life. When it comes off the wall and you, you take the seam ripper out and pull out all the cross stitch and say, okay, what does this look like if I actually live it? It reminds me of the difference between a child and an adult. For, for a child, there is no delayed gratification. Everything must be right now, right now, right now, right now. I demand everything right now. As you grow older, our, our son is soon to be 14. I've noticed he's become far more patient than me, recognizing that everything can't be right now because he's not the center of the universe. For a little child, the center of the universe is me. It's me. That's why I demand everything now. And yet, the world's version of love often demands everything now, does it not? Also, children are very much self-seeking. That's normal. They're not developed yet in their sense of empathy and other people and society. I mean, it would be weird if they were. And that's, I think, why it comes here into it does not envy, it does not boast. The internal and external manifestations of self-seeking. Inward is envy. I want, I want, I want. Outward is boasting. I have, I have, I have. Those are not love either. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Ooh, that's a tough one. No record of wrongs. You don't have to decide to keep a record of wrongs. You have to decide not to. It's the default to just keep a log. I never actually balance my checkbook, but I know who did what to me exactly when and exactly how and exactly how bad. Often people will have these lists, just logs going, making a list, checking it twice, remembering all the times that you were bad to me, what you did, but I'm not letting you in on it until I need it for leverage. You ever had that happen? Somebody pulls out the list you didn't know existed. It's not usually physical, but they start going through all the stuff you've done. I've had that done to me, and I've done it. And I bet if you're honest, you have had both done as well. In fact, I have even kept the record of wrongs that contains someone else having kept a record of wrongs. Remember that time you kept a record of wrongs? I do. That's ironic. This is often how marriages fall apart. 
Husband and wife both kind of keeping these records of wrongs, waiting for the moment in the fight when they can pull it out. Oh, yeah, but what about the time that you blah, blah, blah. I keep it secret. I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm going to be loving until I need to pull it out and thwack you with it. Tell me this. Do you have a record of wrongs going? It's time to expunge it. Burn it. Get rid of it. And you say, hold on, that's, that's wishful thinking. How do you do that? Well, you give it to God. And then, well, I tried that. I still remember. I can't forget. Okay, then you give it to God. Yeah, but then I get angry again about it, and I'm, and I'm tempted to start writing a new record. Okay, great. Then you give it to God. I have experienced this myself and heard many, many other testimonies from believers who have endured far worse than I ever have that this is how you expunge the record of wrongs. You remember, you remind yourself that Scripture says, I sinned against the God of the universe who created everything, gave me life. Then, after I strayed, he came back, died for me so that I could have life once again. Still I sin against him, and still he forgives me. He nailed the list, my record of wrongs, to the cross. If he can do that, he can give me the strength to expunge the record of wrongs that I am keeping. It is wishful thinking, sure. We have reason for this kind of thinking. Ooh, great segue. Frederick Buechner, the great theologian, in his book, Wishful Thinking, wrote this. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. It's a pretty macabre picture, but very fitting and very accurate, and I'm sure all of us have recognized that it was happening in our own lives. Love does not rejoice with evil, but rejoices in the truth. This is a, a, a great chasm between the world's definition of love, which says, forget about truth. Everyone's got their own truth, and, and to love someone means you affirm their truth and celebrate it. We can rejoice in evil together as long as we're rejoicing with each other. There's been a number of times when I have counseled young ladies who had boyfriends who say, hey, I love you. That's why you should do this for me. Out of the bounds of marriage and God's law. But I love you. Don't you know I love you? And I always say he doesn't love you, not with biblical love, or he wouldn't be asking you to rejoice in evil. It's about 180 pounds, a dead weight you should probably lose. Does not rejoice in evil, but in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Wow. That list, again, just it fills us with warm fuzzies. Love bears all things. Love bears, or beareth, even better. Beareth all things. Again, think about what it's saying and what it means. Love bears with all things. Love puts up with a lot of junk, might be the modern paraphrase. In fact, the Greek word here literally, woodenly means love puts a roof on all things. It was an idiom that meant to put like a, a cone of silence over them so that you're enduring without complaining. You put a roof on it. Connotation is kind of making a watertight vessel so nothing gets out. Which means that if you are off with all your friends going, I can't believe I'm putting up with all this, you're not actually bearing with those things. If you were bearing with them, you put a roof on them and you would say, okay, I will bear with this in Jesus' name with the grace shown me that I can then show to others. We always want to know how far do I have to go with this? How much do I have to bear? He says all things here. All of these, all things, all things, all things. Jesus' disciples wanted to know this. How many times do I have to uh, forgive my brother? Seven times? <laughs> nah, seven times 70. And by the way, if you get to 490 and you're still keeping track, you're not bearing all things and you're not loving the way that God would have you love. I do think we need to be careful because this has been misused by people over time, again, pulled out of its context and weaponized to suggest that people in abusive situations or relationships have to bear with it and be quiet and keep it. And scripture as a whole flies in the face of that. This is talking about situations, which when Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, that's an insult slap with the back of the hand. 
It's not a blow with the fist. This is people who annoy you or drain your time a bit or, or bring negative energy into your life. These are things we're called to bear. The world says, oh, isn't it mature to learn to cut everyone out of your life if they don't make you feel better? That's not love. That's the very opposite. This past year, I watched a, a documentary. Finally felt like I could watch it. It's been around for a while, but a, a documentary about 9-11. And I was struck when they talked about people pulling out their phones on those planes and calling their loved ones when they were quite sure they were probably going to die that day. And it occurred to me, everyone called people they loved, and they told them, I love you. I couldn't find any reference to anyone calling like their ex-wife and being like, I just wanted you to know I hate you. Or calling their, their spouse and saying, I may die today, and so here's the list of the record of wrongs. No, they said, I love you. I love you, and that is what they wanted to communicate. If that's what we want to communicate in that moment of facing death, why isn't it what we want to mainly communicate with how we live? When someone dies, right, we, we talk about them and, and what their life was like. We say, you know, Maud, oh, you know, she used to have the most annoying habit that blah, 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 and then everyone laughs and turns to each other and say, yeah, that was Maud. <laughs> well, she's alive. Oh, that's Maud. Why can't we think that way before they die? Bearing all things, showing love. Again, to avoid taking this out of context and turning it on its head, look at the broader context of 1 Corinthians. Certainly bearing all things or enduring all things does not mean that we wink at sin and that we say, no big deal, I'm not going to call someone on their sin or call them to repentance or even bring church discipline. It's only a couple chapters before this where Paul says, expel the immoral brother from the church, the man who's sleeping with his father's wife. And then in 2 Corinthians, he says, hey, the guy repented, what are you doing? Bring him back in. It's not at odds with love whatsoever to do that sort of thing. In fact, it would be rather unloving to leave someone in their sin, the wages of sin being death. So let's look at these last few verses here. 8 through 10. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Or when the perfect one comes. It's another verse with lots of debate, lots of ink spilled about what this means. Probably in our circles, Baptist circles, the most common interpretation here is when the Bible is done. The perfect coming is the canon of Scripture as soon as Revelation is finished, signed John, scrolled up in a scroll, and they all get bundled together. That's it. No more miraculous gifts. This is called cessationism. I can't sign my name on this dotted line. I just can't do that. It's one of two uh, points of doctrine that have often kept me from, from signing a statement of faith that I otherwise could have subscribed to. I, I'm not an overly charismatic guy in my theology, but I'm not ready to say to the Holy Spirit, you don't do that anymore. I've heard stories in the two-thirds world church of an awful lot of miraculous things happen, and over the years, I have seen some things and experienced some things. God is still at work. I don't know why people would prefer a God who's kind of done interacting with his people. But think about this. These gifts are going to come to an end at the close of the canon. That, first of all, when the perfect one comes, that's a stretch. Especially if this is the best we can do, and that is really the best you can do for that doctrine. Other gifts don't come to an end. Teaching, exhortation, compassion, or even knowledge is lumped in here. Where there is knowledge, that will get, when did, how did knowledge end? Maybe a word of knowledge as a somehow distinct from prophecy gift? I don't know. You have to do a lot of pretzelization and, and theological backbends, I think, to make this all work. And picking and choosing in how we read Scripture is always very dangerous. But we don't want to go to the other extreme either. The other extreme where what we're talking about is uh, always having to have miraculous gifts, always having to speak in tongues. Everyone has to have it, even though Paul said some are given the gift of tongues and some are given the gift of prophecy. No, suddenly it becomes the litmus test for whether or not you are a believer and, and things kind of devolve into chaos because the power of a mob feels an awful lot like a religious experience. We want to avoid that as well. The way I read this text, and I think it is quite clear, is that the perfect one coming refers to the perfect one coming. Jesus, he will return. 
And when he comes back, we're not going to need these gifts. You see, the, the gift of tongues is so beautiful. Pentecost is so beautiful because it reverses an effect of the curse at Babel, where God said, I'm going to confuse their language and I'm going to cause them, I'm going to force them to spread out across the earth after the flood like he had commanded them. There's no need for the, the gift of tongues once all things are restored and shalom is restored. These, these things that were incomplete, we now know in part, we prophesy in part, all the stuff we do in part. My ministry is incomplete. Your ministry is incomplete. When the perfect one comes, that will no longer be the case. That is why it is so important that we love. Now, verse 11, he talks about when, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. But I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put up childish things. I put childish things away. If you've ever been the parent of a small child, you know that most of your life is spent putting childish things away for a while, right? Or you're going to step on Legos and then you're going to you know, curse and then you're going to have to repent and all these things. But putting away the childish things, I mean, what does this mean? In reality, it's always kind of stuck out to me as being a little out of left field. And then it occurred to me one day when I was reading this, he's calling these Christians babies. He is. He's saying, you guys are spiritual babies right now. And Paul does that elsewhere in the scripture. He talks about them being infants, preferring the milk to the solid food, etc., etc. He also talks, Jesus talks in his ministry uh, about the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, being like kids who are playing at having a wedding or playing at having a funeral. I, I, you want me to play the tune and you want me to dance like we're, this is some game or something. Have you ever seen children play at having a wedding? If you see them play at having a funeral, call a counselor right away. But it's cute when they play at having a wedding, right? It could look actually kind of real. You got them all in formation. They've seen weddings. The, the only dead giveaway is that the minister is like four years old and he's joining the bride and groom together in holy mattress money or something. But when we look closer, we see that this is just to these Christians... Love is not at the core, self is, which means they are acting very much like toddlers. And he has unrolled for them already this list of all these sins that they have been living in, which should be in their past, but remain in their present. By doing this, he's not being unloving. Again, to not do it, to leave them in their sin, would be the hateful thing. This is another huge gap between our definition of love from the scriptures and the world's definition of love. You read in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, Instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to his will. Verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but, when, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Again, because I've heard it so many times from so early in age, I think of the King James translation. Now we see as through a glass darkly. Such gorgeous language, and yet a little misleading. Because whenever I've read that or thought of that language, I've thought of someone looking through like a, a dirty window, like a grimy window, like oh, I can kind of see him through this glass or through tinted windows of a car. You're like, Is, who's in there? See a, a limo go by? You're like, that was Burt Reynolds. And everyone's like, no, A, he's dead. And also the windows were tinted. You could barely see who was in there. But that's not what they're describing. As the ESV says, this is a mirror, but not like the mirrors we have that are glass. No, this would be a polished brass. Very, very polished, reflective metal. It would be wonderful. It would be the opposite of those crazy, magnifying, super bright mirrors they have in hotels where I'm like, those are my pores on my nose? Are you kidding me? No, this would, it would kind of smooth everything over. You'd be like, wow, I'm still good looking. But the picture here, and I think it's so important to just picture it, you're looking into the glass, the mirror, Darkly, dimly, it's a dim reflection. And you see God, which means it seems like you're looking directly at him, but he's actually behind you. And, and then you're going to be able to turn around and look at him face to face. When the perfect one comes, you'll see, who's, who are we going to see face to face? The Bible? No, Jesus himself. 
which means that we see him dimly through a glass now in the word. We see him dimly through a glass in the bread and in the cup, in the waters of baptism, in spiritual gifts being exercised, in Christians loving one another. But then we will see him face to face. This reminds me of how Moses said, God, I want to see you. I want to see you. God said, I'll let you see my back. And you read that, you go, what does that even mean? And it's an idiom. It means, I'll let you see kind of the path I have gone through. We don't know what it looked like, but it blew his mind. Now we see him in part, dimly. Then we will see him face to face. You know, it's a comfort to me that now I see him dimly. And it's an encouragement to me that someday I'll see him face to face. I love it, actually, when someone asks me a question about God or Christ or Scripture or philosophy or religion. They hear I'm a pastor. That's the first thing people do. They're like, oh, I have crazy questions for you. And I like it when I can say, I don't know. I have no idea. I've never thought of that even. But we'll find out someday. Isn't it a comfort that we don't know everything? This isn't some system that someone set out and they answered every possible question. No, we are looking at our God who is omnipotent and infinite through a glass darkly, a dim reflection, but we have the promise that one day we will see him face to face. So we look at verse 13, coming to an end here. Now faith, hope, and love abide. These three but the greatest of these is love. You know the Greek word here for love already? It's agape. Agape is, it's kind of a word that the church invented. They didn't make the syllables. It was already a rather obscure word for love, but they gave it new meaning. Kind of like how we already had the word text, but we gave it new meaning, a technical meaning now. And when you say text, probably your first thought isn't the, the words that make up a book, but a little message sent on a device, right? Well, they took this obscure word for love. It only occurs a couple times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And they said, all right, this is the word we're going to use to describe Jesus' love. Self-giving love. Love that lays down one's life for one's friends. One, the, the love that puts others first and then puts self. That's the kind of love that we are describing when we talk about Agape. We're talking about the love that we see in this composite picture. The love that is the function of the law for us. You know, it's Mother's Day. I think about how there are actually laws on the books in just about every state that say a mother has to care for her children. In 99.9999999% of cases, there doesn't need to be a law. You see a woman with her child, and you walk up and say, hey, you know, it's the law, you have to care for that baby. You're probably going to get smacked, or at least they're going to say, get away from me, weirdo. What That's just what overflows from the heart of a mother. And yet, here we see that the law of love, which should overflow from us, always is, is not the case. Sometimes we are content with the world's definition of love rather than agape love. Sometimes we are willing to say, you know what, i got to put me first. got to learn to love myself before I can love others. That's not in the scripture, although you would think it was because you sometimes hear it even from believers. Agape love is not a difference in quantity, more human love. It's a difference in quality, a different kind of love altogether. Sometimes when I'm doing premarital counseling, I, I like to, just for fun, suggest that the text at a, a wedding be not 1 Corinthians 13, but Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto Christ. The front of my desk is solid, so the, the woman can't kick me. So she, you know, she, nine times out of ten, she punches her fiancé. It's hilarious. But if you keep reading that text, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's describing agape love that lays down one's life. The picture of marital love and indeed Christian love in the scriptures is not, I lord it over you and you submit. It's submitting to one another. It's, I love you and lay down my life for you. You love me and lay down your life for me. We both put the other first, or as Paul puts it, we outdo one another in showing honor. That is biblical love. And so I'll tell you what, I I am a Baptist through and through. I'm more Baptist every year, I feel. But we get together with our Presbyterian friends, and, and we worship together, and they say, you know, we have some differences, but we all love Jesus. And I say, yes, isn't it awesome? It's one of my favorite times of year when we get together for Holy Week. 
I, I am not really hardcore on the spiritual gifts. We don't really speak in tongues. We don't set aside time for things like that. We got a church meeting in the chapel that does, or actually they meet in here at 5 p.m. Great, awesome. God be praised that you are seeing the gifts manifest in your presence. Maybe you can take us aside and teach us a little bit about it sometime. I'm a Calvinist, which means I believe in God's sovereignty at the core of all things. That God has predestined those unto life. But you know what? If someone comes up and says, I'm the opposite. I'm an Arminian. You named your son Calvin. I named my son Willie. That'll sink in later. Free will. I don't care. Fine. Let's preach the gospel together. We all know that Jesus loves us. And the only way we have salvation is in his name. I don't believe in a pre-tribulation secret rapture or this kind of thing. I don't see it anywhere in scripture. But someone comes up and says, yeah, I believe that beginning to end. That is absolutely true. You know what? Great. If I get raptured and we get raptured on the way up, I'm just going to go, woohoo, and high five you. We can love Jesus together. But... If someone says, I'm a Christian, but I don't really like people. I'm a Christian, but all the people at my church are jerks. The elders are a bunch of boneheads. The pastor, I can't stand him. Even to hear him breathe just upsets me. I just, I can't, I, I can't love people. My friend, if that is the case, I am concerned for your soul. Because more and more, that kind of love, loving others, enduring all things, bearing all things, being patient and kind, not envying and boasting, keeping no record of wrongs, all of this should more and more define who we are. Let me ask you this question by way of closing. If you were to take this text, and you were to take the word love and replace it with your first name, and read through it, where would you stop? And either laugh out loud or cringe really hard. If you were to go through, Zach is patient. Zach is kind. Zach does not envy. Zach keeps no record of wrong. Zach bears a... Where would you go? Ugh. We all have those places. This is the composite picture. This is useful to us like an MRI is useful to show you where you need to go inside of yourself and address something. This is the kind of passage that doesn't say, here's the law you have to keep in order to be saved. This is the kind of passage that says, because you've been saved, here is the law of love that you will want more and more to keep. Here is the composite picture of Jesus that will more and more be a composite picture of Zach, of Dean, of Jen, of each of us as we are being sanctified. As we look to the cross more and more, not for large amounts of worldly love, but for that one love, the agape love, the love that saved us, the love that is changing us, remaking us into a new creation. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a passage that gives us a picture of love that is so different from what the world presents. Lord, we pray that we would go through this passage and look at each statement about love and where it does not describe us, Lord, we would turn to you in repentance. We would look to you to change our hearts and give us this love. It is not native to us. We don't find it inside of our hearts. We find it at the cross. And then we find it as you make us more and more into your image. We find that we live more and more in light of this agape love. Lord, we pray that we would not be content to only check a few of these boxes and say, there, I'm making some progress. I'm doing okay. Lord, may we want to give our whole hearts to you and see all aspects of your love lived out in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.